From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Hello and welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. My name is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of OID Cade Massey. Some combination of the four of us are here every week here on Sirius XM 132 on our podcast. For the last year plus, we've been doing it by Zoom, but we're starting to feel confident that very soon we'll be back live in the Wharton studio together doing our show. And as all of you know that have been following us for the last seven years, uh, we do some combination of sports and statistics throughout the show. And of course, the last year or so, we've been talking about COVID in the first quarter of our show. And that will be, we'll do that for the first quarter. For quarters two and three, we'll be talking about sports and statistics. And then we have a great guest joining us in Q4, Dr. Glenn Fleisick, who's going to talk to us about biomechanics and sports. So how are you guys doing today? Excellent. How's it going with you? It's going, going very, very well. I'm sitting in the city of champions, the 4-0 Phillies, for the third time in just their history. But we'll only, get to only, that. Only, you know, only, 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 two, uh, only on two undefeated teams in yeah, the one's zero, one's O and O, and the other's four and O. But we'll get that's to right. that's related to COVID, Shane. But we'll get to that in a second. But of course, the way we've been starting out the show for the last, you know, really fifty-two weeks or so, has been what's caught your eye in COVID. So let me just throw it out to you guys. Uh, what's caught your eye in COVID now? So well, I, I mean, I'm going to enjoy being on on this side of the conversation, and uh, I suppose the thing that's most interesting to me is the change, the differences across states. And uh, the, the, the New York Times had a great visual on this today that showed they, they laid out the states physically in a similar way as they are geographically on the figure. And it really jumped out to you that the declines are in the south and the southwest and the, in the north and the midwest, we're seeing the increases. And the first question that raises for me is what role temperature is playing because we know that the states in the South haven't necessarily had the wiser policies. So there are a zillion confounding variables. This is just a light hypothesis, but having just moved from Philadelphia to Texas and experiencing a Texas spring for the first time in 30 years, it's very different from a Philadelphia spring or a Wisconsin spring or a Michigan spring. People are outside, people are gathering outside. There's a very different social dynamic in the South in March than there is in the Midwest. And I'm curious what role that's playing in these very different patterns we're seeing in states. Yeah, And, and the other as part as of this fact, discussion is the variance in different parts of the country as well. Yeah, the only thing I was going to say is just to confirm the data you're saying. I went to the CDC website, as I do, before all of our shows, Cade, and Alabama and Mississippi right now are the only states whose confidence interval for R0, the reproductivity rate, is below one, just to confirm what you're saying, and generally much lower for the South than compared to the North. Yeah, Adi? Yeah, I mean, I've been staring at these numbers like forever. I just recapped. Remember last week, I brought in the, the death, the mortality rate across states. There's so much variation. It's almost as if you live in, in, in 50 different countries. Um, the median is, is, is just a gigantic spread, factor of, of, of 10 from worst to best. And this, what you're seeing right now, Kate, is something that's really regional. If you just take a swath of the country from west to south, a big giant arc, an L shape, if you will, it, we, everybody had the same surge. We all did. This entire country had the same surge uh, from November through early February. 
but that L shape, they're down. But the rest of the country is, it went down a lot, but they didn't really go down. They just right. went sort of middle region. Uh, and that's where you're seeing it. And, and I, I don't know, I, I'd like to wonder if it's, it's temperature, but I've been, my, I feel like my ass has been burned so badly every time I try yeah. to the hypothesis that I just hate to hate to say the only thing I know about spread is at the extremes, severe lockdown that works and nothing that also works. Yeah. <laughs> haven't we, isn't it possible, Adi, that what we saw in the other surges, which is, you know, it started either in the West coast or the East coast. And then people mm. are like, well, it's not going to affect us in the South. It's not going to affect us in the upper Midwest. They were just lagged behind. Isn't it possible that there's just a lag and we're going to see those or once R goes below one, do you believe it's going to stay below one? No, I mean, I'm just going to, let's just do a little history here. We don't all start at the same time, but almost the entire country had a surge, be either October, November, December, everywhere, somewhere. I mean, there wasn't a single part of the country, maybe Hawaii, I think, managed to escape the, 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 the surge completely. But the entire country had surges to varying degrees in this sort of November, December, January. Well, were they all temporarily period. at the same time, Adi? I thought there was a couple weeks. No, there was a shift. There was a little shift, but not bad. I mean, okay. and, you know, and they also had different plateaus. Like California's just lasted forever. Um, and I don't know why it did. New York and New Jersey did. Um, uh, some states just went down and peaked and went right back down. What you haven't seen anywhere is an R get, getting really way below one and driving things down fast. That will happen. And I posted a, gra- a graphic on Twitter. Um, I'll advertise it now. Uh, that will only happen. I, that's my hypothesis. When you get sufficient vaccination that really drives it up, that can drive the R down a lot. And the only country that, that I looked at that's had anything close to that is Israel, because they have they, they have 75 percent people. And that's that might be what it takes. I'm curious to hear more on Israel from you in a moment, Adi, because some of the stuff coming out of it is just amazing. But on these state differences, let me just give you one other observation. The hospitalization numbers in Texas. So Texas is in the south region where we see these drops. But the hospitalization numbers ticked up today. I think it was today or maybe yesterday, a little bit. And the question, okay, is that the beginning of one of these increases or is that just a little blip? But interestingly, if you go back a week, you go back to the end of March, and there was a distinct rise in hospitalizations, and it was maybe on the order of 10% from maybe 4,500 a day to 5,000 hospitalizations, and it, it was coinciding with the, it, two weeks after spring break. So you definitely saw the impact, at least in that state, uh, of what we believe was a, a spring break. And, and now I'm really curious whether Texas is going gonna, is gonna to continue trending down like we've seen in some of the deep south or whether this today's increase, yesterday's increase is the beginning of one of these increases. Has anybody seen that data broken down because the by age group? Because one of the things we keep hearing about is that this is a much younger cohort of people. Like this is now the 30s and 40 year olds. Because as Adi mentioned, you asked for the 75%. We have the 75% number now in in the elderly. So yeah. those that age group is not. So do have we is it true what they're saying that essentially it's the 30 to 40 year olds now that this is the cohort that's going to suffer the most from this fourth wave, if you'd like? I mean, what we're kind of seeing indirect indications of that just because the number of cases is the thing that's kind of plateaued and maybe mm-hmm. is climbing back up in states. The death rate is still 
most really increasing, low. right? Yeah, and so, absolutely. you know, if, if it really is kind of, you know, a lot of the these kind of recent surgeons is being driven by the younger cohorts, you can kind of see like you, you could see why the kind of case rate would no longer, like we, we're almost seeing a little bit of a decoupling of the, at least the direction of the actual case rate with the death rate. So, so I'm going to uh, kind of get back to Cade's question about Israel. I've been tracking it very closely for a very personal reason. My daughter has moved there and I want to see her. And like many countries, there's been a, essentially a, a freeze. You couldn't get in. Um, and so I kept tracking, uh, hoping things would get better enough so that the government would change its policy and let relatives of people who live there and other people who have a need to go to go to go and visit their their family members. So I've been watching it very closely. And one of the things that, that, that it's very important to realize is that it takes a while before, even in a mass vaccination campaign, before it was enough vaccinated to bring it down. At did least you see, six Adi, Did you see a discontinuity? Like when it got to, you know, they've said like at 40%, not a big drop in R. But once it got to 60%, wow, that was a massive drop. Did you see like, in other words, if uh, I, no, just I, for I, our I, listeners, let me just finish. If I, if just for our listeners, yeah. if I graphed on the x-axis, the vaccination, the fraction of people that have been vaccinated, obviously between zero and one. And on the y-axis, I had, let's say, either the death rate or the number of cases. Obviously, it's going to be a downward sloping curve. The more people you vaccinated, it's going to go downward. But at some point, you might see like not linear dropping. You might see it a precipitous drop. And is there, has there any data that suggests like there is a 50%, 60%, whatever that point is? It could be, but that's not how the, because the vaccine isn't being distributed distributed kind of randomly or uniformly it's distributed to the old first they're not the spreaders they're the sickers they're the ones who get sick Very so good if, point. We, if we had done i mean this has been something the chain has talked about regularly give it out to the people who are spreading it not to the people dying from it and i don't know whether that's right or wrong it's it's a reasonable hypothesis but in israel and in many countries the rates of infection kind of climbed as the vaccine was being distributed i think that's coincidental there's there's other people with sort of weird ideas, I won't name names, who says that it's the vaccine's fault. I think it's that's garbage. I just think it's, it's the, 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 the pace of infections and the timing of the vaccines. So in almost every country like England, like like United States, um, you saw increases during the initial stages and then a plateau. And, and then there was a point where it started to drop a lot. Um, and I don't know whether that was... Um, hitting a, a percentage is something to look when we look at, at other states. But what happened is, is cases go down first, then um, you'll start to see hospitalizations go down. Then you see deaths go down, as you would expect. Um, what Israel did is, is once it went down a lot, they actually opened up schools. And then what do you think happened? Started to go up again. And then there was all this panic. Oh my God, it's not working. About three weeks later, it fell off a cliff. I mean, it was just almost a shocking drop. And simultaneously, they opened up the economy completely. And the best news out of Israel is in the last four weeks or so, everything has gone down to very low levels, simultaneous to a complete reopening of the economy, 100%. It looks there like it looks in Australia. And this, is, uh, and this was uh, obtained even while they're sort of what Australians would think are the middle of the pandemic and they accomplish this through vaccination and it's really does work. I mean, I have to, and, and, and the also the, the, the wild card in the United States and I think nationally and internationally as well is you got to get everyone to do it. I think the, the most important task for the United States and the rest of the world right now is to make sure we don't have wide swaths of the country refusing 
Um, and I think this is the big battle. Adi, what can you remind us what percentage of Israelis are now vaccinated? Okay, so that's a funny business because everyone 18 and under are not. All right, that's already 20, 25% of the population is right off the top because they can't be vaccinated. So of the remaining 80% or so, it's at least 75, maybe 85%. Then there's the other issue which Israel did, which if you had been sick, you went to the back of the line. Now you can now you're now you're able to get vaccinated even if you hadn't been even if you had been sick with COVID, but they won't vaccinate you unless you're three solid months past your infection rate. United States, I think it's 30 days. Right. So they got a, a, a big bonus. Uh, I mean, they took advantage of the natural immunity and to not to to get a much higher percentage. At this point, there are pockets of communities that still have very small low rates, but some um, potentially communities that, that have been resistant to vaccinating uh, for a variety of different reasons, which are inappropriate to get into here. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions Cade Massey. Uh, you're here on Sirius XM 132 listening to our podcast, Wharton Moneyball. Some combination of the four of us, if not all of us, are here every week recording, talking about in the first quarter, COVID, quarters two and three, sports and statistics, and of course, Q4 uh, an interview, and today it's with Dr. Glenn Fleissig, who's going to talk to us about biomechanics. So, have we um, have we gotten enough data from places like the U.S. and Israel? Given that it's not a random rollout and everything like that, and different cohorts are getting in in different sequences, do we have enough data to suggest that compliance in the U.S. is dramatically different than, say, compliance in Israel? Uh, well, you can tell you already that compliance in Israel is, is a lot higher. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why is you can't get into places unless you have what they call a green pass. Mm -hmm. um, and the the the, the so that Adi, are we going to get there. Do you think forget policy for a second, although it is a policy issue. If we get to a place what you're suggesting, which is I think you've said this all along within a month and a half, let's say from now maybe two months, everybody that wants to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. And we yes. may still be left with, a, I'll call it a third to 40% of the population not vaccinated. The number of cases will not drop to tiny, tiny levels. Um, more variants potentially can emerge, which we hope that the current vaccine that we've all started to take slash taken will be defense, defensive, if you'd like, against them. But are we ever going to get to that point where everything can just open up? What do you think, Adi? Well, well, I mean, I'm going to tell you what I think, and then Shane can tell you what he thinks. And um, I can tell you that my, my basic answer is I don't know. I don't think we're ever going to get to the, the, the amount that, that, that uh, Israel has. I will tell you that uh, Yankee Stadium allows you in only if you have a vaccination or a or negative PCR test. So that's an incentive right there. You want to go to the, to the stadium in the Bronx, get yourself your vaccine. Uh, but we don't have a, a formal system. We have these CDC cards, um, which are not government. I mean, although apparently they are registered. And if you lose one, you can get it. You can get a you can get signed just reading about that. Um, but we don't have this national health system or a, or a repository. I don't see us ever moving to, to requiring a, some kind of identification. No way. And I definitely think we have a large chunk of people who are just not going to get it. And I think it's going to be a problem. But I'm not persuaded I know enough to give a, a, a prediction. <laughs> well, I can I can make a prediction is that there's going to be, as there has been throughout this entire thing, incredible regional heterogeneity 
in behavior amongst the U.S. And so there are going to be you, you talked about how we have to keep, you know, make sure that there's not large swaths of the U.S. Mm-hmm. that do that have big rates of noncompliance. And I'm sorry, there will be. There will be large swaths of the U.S. where no non-compliance will be low. And even if we kind of went to sort of a nationally recommended kind of green pass kind of system, the amount of enforcement of that is going to have a lot of regional heterogeneity and in exactly the wrong way, you know, where the, the regions that are less interested, like Florida in compliance in general, are not going to all, also kind of comply with any kind of green pass type mandate. And so I think we're just going to have to deal with large heterogeneity, regional heterogeneity in the U.S., and so we're coming back to your thing. When will we get to the point where we can open up again? Well, we already are. It's just, you know, it's like if you accept as kind of a, a requirement for opening up that COVID goes down to a certain level, we're never going to get there. Or we're certainly not going to get there in certain parts of the U.S. But those same parts of the U.S. are going to be kind of culturally comfortable with opening up anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I, I think is, is that COVID is a funny disease. It's very, very common. It's very contagious. But for most people, and in particular, the people who are not going to get vaccinated, it tends to be very mild and rates of complications and death are, are rare. We would almost be better served as a country if it were 10 times less frequent, but 10 times more dangerous. Then everyone would get vaccinated, right. even though it's mathematically exactly the same thing. We're just done in by a behavioral fallacy about probabilities. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Hey, you, you're, yeah, when you get back, maybe you can answer them. I'm right. <laughs> it, it sounds reasonable to me. It sounds reasonable, Adi. It sounds reasonable, and uh, it's a great way to put it. So let me now turn. To, we talked about kind of the spread and the, the rates and everything. Let's now talk about the other side of the coin. What are we learning about the protection? You know, both Pfizer and Moderna have come out recently and said, we know you get at least six months of protection. There's forecasts that it's much longer than that, maybe years of protection. I've heard a recent comment by Dr. Fauci and others uh, that it's possible that you'll get one booster shot and similar to other types of vaccines like that's it for your life. That's what it's going to be. What what do we know so far about the length? I know we're all hoping for that, Adi. What do we think about the length of protection that we're going to get? What do we know so far? Well, I can I can give of just one piece of virology that I've gotten from some friends that is not a rapidly it is a rapidly mutating. But but Eric, you'll appreciate this on effect size mutation. It's pretty slow. So the flu virus vaccinates when it mutates it's a giant flop of a whole arm of dna and it just creates a entirely different uh, flu va- uh, virus version and you need so, a completely I'm, different clarifying question Adi, is this this is why there's always kind of a roll of the dice with the flu vaccine you you do it yep. early in the season and, and there's some chance you don't get the right one that's, that's what it. that's talking about okay that's right it's the, the variants are out there they're very different and if you don't get the vaccine that matches it's just totally ineffective the, the changes in the, in the coronavirus are, are on effect size basis, really small. And so, yeah, there are lots of them because it does mutate, but they, but they don't really seem to make that much difference. And so far, the variants, some of them are more, more contagious. Some of them are maybe some slightly deadlier, though that's still out in, the, out in the undetermined range. Contagiousness, we know, is more. Um, but they all seem to be effective. I mean, the vaccines seem to be effective, at least the biggies, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the, the J&J all seem to be effective against all strains. Israel only has the British strain. 
So that's where England clearly has the British strain. Uh, it seems to be working there too. It's increasing um, in most parts of the U.S. too. Places most like the U.S. Has, has a lot of the places that are spiking. It is that British strain because, now. That's because it is way more contagious. Um, mm. I'm hopeful that that we that we won't need um, frequent boosters, but I would guess we'll need another. Well, that's kind of what I was curious about because we're talking about do you need one for B one seventeen or whatever, but. What about the the one that's not yet identified that's going to emerge six months from now? At some point, will there be some mutation that we will need a booster for? And then I want to ask kind of more generally, are we just entering a new phase of the world in our lives where some vaccination is going to be necessary on some far more frequent basis than it's ever been before? And like vaccinations in general are just going to be a more regular thing for us. Remember in our conversation last week with Lauren Ansel Myers, the last question we asked her was, okay, it was 100 years until this happened. Uh, is it going to be 100 until the next? She says, like, yeah, no way. Yeah, she, she even gave about, us the time series of the last four or five. Yeah, she said even in her professional life, the, 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 the span between these things is getting shorter. And so it just strikes me that – and people have talked about I – don't, I don't know the details on this, but you know, this, the, 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 the methodology they're using to build these vaccines – it's kind of a general methodology that 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 is kind of a vessel for other other strains, and so it just strikes me based on based on what we're hearing from Lauren Ansel Myers and other experts, and what the, how the way they're doing this is that this is just going to be a way of life. Now, by the way, that just says this issue that we have with heterogeneity in the population and some people being anti-vaccination is only going to be a, a bigger problem going forward because it seems like this is going to be this is it. This is where we are. This we just get used to this for a while. I mean, for a while, I mean the rest of our lives. Yeah, and there's some mechanistic reasons to believe that we are kind of entering, like that we are going to continue to have more kind of viral kind of things happening in our in our lives compared to like a hundred years ago. So, so human society is so much more interconnected, and you know we're, we we travel all over the place. The amount, the ability for any communicable agent to spread is so much greater than it was a hundred years ago. And you know the other part that's a little bit less kind of certain, I think, in terms of like you know exactly how it affects particular viruses, but obviously our climate is also changing. You know, I mean, tropical viruses probably have, tropical kind of viruses like Ebola are going to only have a greater range of kind of possible spread in the future, but maybe more temperate viruses like Corona seems to be, you know, where it seems to be like it does better in in colder weather. Maybe that actually will kind of like act against viruses Mm -hmm. like that in the future. Do you Mm -hmm. see the possibility that by the time we get through this wave of first vaccinations of people that are willing to be vaccinated, that it's time, like we'll be just continually vaccinating, like by that time, the January people, it'll be time for them to get their booster shots, like it'll be September, October, November, yep, the eight, nine months is up, now they need to be, do you see us in a continuous just flow of vaccination? Well, I, I, I think so, between, between the, between the booster possibility and the new strains, and then the third category, which is the next one, <laughs> you know, between those three possibilities, it feels like, I mean, here's the question. How many vaccinations do you think you're going to take over the next 10 years? What's your over under on the number that you personally will get the number of shots? I don't mean a two dose regimen. I mean, the number of vaccinations you're going to receive over the next 10 years. Am Let's I counting the two dose number. shot as two or one? Yeah, no, two dose shot is one a two, is or one. a three dose shot is one, but a course is one. How many courses are you going to take over the next 10 years for some version of this or something like this? And do we count, will we fold the flu into this or is it just Corona? Let's not do flu. Flu, flu, flu is already kind of in our world. You know, I, I, I want to give you one piece of information before you make your over under guesses. 
Uh, Moderna just is testing an HIV uh, vaccine based on the same technology. Um, it this could be an enormous. Pfizer's planning on ta- Pfizer's just preliminary testing a cancer uh, drug based on this technology. As I mean, well. so just to throw in a wrench, it's I'm not sure that viruses are going to be that. I, I'm not sure I was agreed with the hypothesis last week from from Ansel Myers that we're going to be facing much more rapidly uh, dangerous viruses. I think what we're going to have is a incredible, powerful tool at our disposal that we'll just be using much more widely. Well, that's interesting. And, and let's let's now let's fold that flu in as kind of a baseline. So let's just say let's just say we all get the flu vaccine every year. So prior to this, our, our forecast for the next 10 years would have been 10. Let's just say that mm-hmm. now we're going to open it up to, you know, boosters on COVID-19, a new vaccination for a new strain. Um, and now we're going to widen all the way to Audis for future for other illnesses that haven't been treated by vaccine in the past. How many vaccination shots well, do you think you're going to take over the next 10 years where 10 is the baseline because you've been doing a flu every year anyway? Before we answer that, let me just say the reason it's hard for me to give you an answer, not because I don't want to give you an answer, is is do we will we eventually find out that they can give me a double strength dose and I'll only have to get it once every two years instead of every year? Or maybe they can combine the COVID one with the right. flu one with the X right. one. And so maybe I'm getting one bigger shot. And Good. so I don't know the answer to those questions. Um, I think I will be getting plenty of vaccine over the next 10 years to fight lots of things off. But I don't know the, no- I don't personally know the number of shots. I'd be happy if they just take out a massive syringe, stick me with it and say, <laughs> we'll see you in five years. I'd be okay with that. I don't think it's going to work that way because. Oh. Uh, because they're just, I mean, you'll be a new vaccine for every new disease. Um, and, and quite literally, the flu is a yearly, it's a new disease every year. It's, it's the same family, but it, it really is a new, a new variant. That's why, uh, that's why you need a new vaccine every year. Well, I think we'll also what we're also seeing uh, is the effect that we're going to see now is on the younger population. We're seeing it being tested. The recent study I saw, and since I have a 12 to 15 year old, we actually uh, it was 100 percent effective. We will see how much of it. I know, Adi, it's a small sample study. Obviously, <laughs> you know, there was one group that had a zero, the treatment group. The other group had like an 18 or something. So it was not a massive numbers. But let me just say there's no, I'll use your words from previous weeks, Adi. There's no evidence to suggest it isn't very effective in young people age 12 to 15 and we've got to agree to that well that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball we've been talking about COVID as we have been for the last year or so Uh, we're going to be talking about sports statistics we've got a lot of NCAA stuff to talk about the Masters to talk about so stay with us and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen. Uh, we're going to be talking about sports and statistics, the topics we love, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of areas. But of course, given we're recording on Tuesday here, the big event was last night, was the NCAA Men's Finals. Um, maybe a surprise to lots of people. Um, not so much that uh, Baylor beat Gonzaga, and Gonzaga was, of course, an undefeated team, but 
by the way in which they beat Gonzaga. Um, I think it's only the fourth time in like the last 40 years where there's been a 15 point or more win in the in the tournament game. As a matter of fact, Baylor won both their final four games by more than 15 points. And so I think these large wins are not as uh, as often as you think. So what did you guys think of the game? Uh, anything, uh, any stats stick out from the game? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I guess I, it, I, this is not a statistical argument. It's more of an emotional one. It was kind of a letdown for me because I feel like, you know, that 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 uh, UCLA Gonzaga game was such an absolute classic game, one of the best college basketball games I've ever watched. And now is it kind of just lost to – are we going to remember that game? We certainly would remember that game much more if it was kind of the penultimate and alt- and the most competitive game uh, you know, essentially en route to a perfect season. Now, are, are we still going to remember that game and, so, and the amazing ending to that game? I'm, I'm not sure we will. Well, Shane, let me ask you, does it make you think, does it make you look back on that game now that we see that Gonzaga got beaten soundly by Baylor and say, maybe the reason that game with UCLA was so competitive is neither of those teams is that good. Like UCLA is no. 11. No, you, well, let me throw out my theory first. I'm not saying it's true, Kay, but UCLA is an 11 seed. They deserve to be an 11 seed. Gonzaga didn't beat anybody above a five seed. The highest seed they played in the tournament was Creighton at number five. Maybe they just weren't that good. <laughs> well, I mean, co- counter argument, maybe Baylor's just not that good. They beat Houston. Houston didn't face all that many high seeds. So, sure, they beat Gonzaga. And, well, and, no, they beat Houston. And, and Houston they beat a two seed was, and a one seed. And the overall well, but number he, one. Who did Houston beat on the way? Like a 13 seed, a 10 seed? I mean, you know, I, I just think you can take that same rationale and just kind of start extending it out where all of a sudden no team is good. Well, look, guys, this was this was one of the most preordained one-two championship games that we've seen in our adult life. I mean, everybody said these were the best two teams in the country going in, and then sure enough, they arrive in the title game. So that, that's pretty rare. So I think Priors, Priors would argue against you, Eric. Now, I, ha- I have to admit that I enjoyed seeing Gonzaga lose only because we've been shorting them since the beginning of the tournament. Except we had – I have to say, guys, there was some doubt in this room last Wednesday. We were like – bemoaning how chalky the second the second weekend was and sure enough in the end Zags didn't quite get it done and we were a little dubious about the big numbers on them from the well, we were beginning. bemoaning I think they were minus 150 we were like how is that possible a hundred percent so and let's 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 talk about that semi first because oh my gosh I mean we talk sometimes on, on here about sporting events where you like to see events where someone wins as opposed to someone loses and I mean, that was one of these things where it was like success after success after success. And it was just extraordinary. And it was some of the you, that's that's one of those. This is why we love sports moments. My God, that was fun to watch. So, Adi, I know you have looked at this or there's I'm sure there's some mathematical law that governs this. The thing that shuck, uh, stuck with me the most about the uh, Gonzaga UCLA game was that the difference in score and it was never more than seven points. Unbelievable. And actually, it was only seven points for like. 10 seconds, consider it a five point game for the entire game. I've mm-hmm. got to believe that's extraordinarily rare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, under the hypothesis that there, that if whether one team scores is independent of the, whether there's a score of the other team on the next time, or is it just all Bernoulli P with the, with the same, well, each team has its own P that hypothesis is just rejectable by, by what you saw in that game. I mean, it, you'd have to have way more variation 
uh, uh, much more wider swings. So just staying clear, right what, on top of each other is highly so why, unlikely. Why would that be? Why would that be? So you're saying it's very unlikely statistically to observe this. So we're so what, see, else, what else would keep it? Because it has a U-shape, uh, the distribution. No, no, I, I, I get that. So, but why would it be, I mean, it happened. Is there, is it just chance that it happened or was there some dynamic that's outside of the random oh, process? Okay. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the basketball people. You got to tell me, what, what do you see on the court? Well, I guess what talk we saw about- is, is two teams that were very positively correlated in kind of their kind of minute to minute sort of performance in the game. Why, I mean, but why would that be? Why? Why would that? Why? Why it happened for these two specific teams? Again, I don't know enough about. Why would? Why would any? Why would any game? Why would teams be positively correlated? And I would argue it's chance. And this is just that's why it's a great game. And how so many games are not great games. The great games are rare. And when they happen, they have no. They don't need explanations. They just this is where it worked out. Well, yeah, I'm more making an observation that, that there's a positive correlation, but it's probably at the extreme of the kind of correlations. You know, if you think about the underlying distribution of correlations you could sample from for any given day, game, this probably was at right at the end of it or the, the edge of it. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Shane, that um, put this way, you could certainly, through, even through simulation, you could simulate game outcomes and say, what would be the probability of score given score that it would require to get basically it never like if, if it was literally one if one team scored and then the other team scored by definition you would definitely get no long you would not get a difference of more than five points um but what would it have to be it I, I think it would have to be a very high number and i also think it's more likely to happen in a high scoring game than a low scoring game because in some sense i think it, i think in a high scoring game there's just um it's just more. I, I think there's just more opportunities. And I think in a low scoring game with rarer events, I think you would probably have to have a much higher correlation. Well, and I mean, you kind of like, you know, again, one easy way to get easy get a way to get a correlation of one between the two teams scores is for them to always be successful when they try and score. Right. Well, that, that's- and, and that's gonna, the easiest way to get that is both teams decide they're not going to play very hard defense. So right. witness like the NBA all-star game, that's going to be a highly correlated game, but because there's not much defense. I know lots and lots of people were watching that UCLA game like I was and saying, why didn't I bet when UCLA was plus 2,000? That's after getting to the Final Four. UCLA was plus 2,000 to win the title. And I have to admit, as I was watching that uh, UCLA-Gonzaga game, I was like, I don't know, that would have been worth 50 bucks to put on UCLA <laughs> plus 2,000? Uh, just to follow up, is it possible that when you score, you play weaker defense, and then when you fail to score, you play stronger defense? That could put a great hypothesis. I've never seen it studied, but that's a very simple question to ask of the data. And it's not unreasonable. The, now, the challenge is that um, that makes some happen, happen mechanically to some extent because people get back on D. You know, someone puts a ball up and they get back on D as opposed to if you're under the under the bucket or crashing the boards or playing more aggressive on the offensive side, you're going to be back. It's going to be harder for you to be back. Um, what you're bringing up, Kate, is the possibility that this is something that motion tracking data may be able to help us with now, because now we know the position on the court and actually we know the speed at which they're running as well. So what, what do you all think about the possibility that the that the semi game Saturday night took took all the juice out of Gonzaga? They just had too much to recover from. And Baylor had that easy match. So this is my father in law's hypothesis. He's like, hey, I mean, they just didn't have it from the very beginning because the Saturday night game just took it out of them. Yeah, I remember a world a uh, playoff uh, series uh, that basically took the the wind out of the Yankees. They they beat the Red Sox in seven, and and they had nothing left for the World Series. 
I believe in that. If you play so hard in the in the run up to the finale, that leaves you in a weakened position. Do you think physically, Adi, or emotionally, or both? When they're when they're that close, I think it's uh, I think it's both. Um, but I think I think mental preparation is really important. It's not quantifiable, but I do think it's important. And that a and that a real shock, like a giant, you know, uh, game or a series of games could be very difficult. No, and I totally understand how it could be the case. And I assume you're referring to like 2003, the the, the ALCS that went to seventh games, and then the the, the Yankees kind of gotten blown blown out by Florida in the in the, uh, in the yep. World series. But I mean, the next year, you know, the Red Sox and Yankees also had an epic battle that like went even longer. And then the Red Sox rolled through the World Series. So, I mean, I just think, I, yeah. I, I mean, I can certainly think of historical examples of, of that kind of thing happening. But it seems, you know, I, I don't know if it's replicatable in that, you know, can you actually predict given given this particular amazing emotional kind of victory that that is going there is going to be either a positive or negative carryover. I don't I don't know. I don't know if there, there's much there. I think what's interesting also about the game is let me tell you guys a few stats of the game after the game was over. And I'm like. How is this possible? So which team do you think, by the way, shot better from the floor in the game? Who's I'm going to guess Gonzaga. Gonzaga. But... Gonzaga also, by the way, shot at least on twos. We'll get to this in a second. They shot higher than 50% on twos in the game. They also, um, turns out, this was the difference. They get made five less threes. That's already doesn't help. And number two, the big killer. They gave up 18 more shots, 18 more shots. I think it was 67 Mm. shots taken by uh, Baylor and 49 by Gonzaga. I don't know if you, when you were watching the game, if you thought this, I'm like every shot that's being put up by Baylor that's missed, there's an offensive rebound going on here. And so to me, but if you had told me before the game, Gonzaga would shoot better and shoot over 50% on twos, how can they possibly lose this game? I would have been, there's no way. And certainly I wouldn't have thought they could lose by 16 points if that were possible. Well, you know, those, those things strike me as, as effort stats as well. It's not exclusively that size would matter as well as, as well, but on, on defense and denial and turnovers, as well as offensive boards, these are, there's a style there, but there's an effort. And it also might connect to the previous conversation about whether their legs were dead after Saturday, whether their energy was down after Saturday. If there really is kind of like an exhaustion effect or something like that, you kind of think that that would represent itself even more in things like rebounding and, and kind of these sort of, you know, much more physically kind of competitive actions than maybe three-point shooting or something like but, that. But, you know, we've, we've talked about this periodically over the years, and, and I, we, I don't think we're seeing enough of it. This is a miss, a miss for motion tracking for me is in basketball and hockey and maybe soccer where you could actually you could actually observe – the level of movement that the players are exerting and you could norm that relative to what normally happens and get a sense of how much more effort they're exerting during a game. And we've talked about it with playoff hockey. It just feels so different. And I have always wanted those, those biometric measures, those tracking measures. Oh, yeah. you, this is another example. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see what Baylor did, you know, just to compare Baylor's movement exertion as, as much as you could observe it relative to the average team or relative to their previous performances. Were they that much more than UCLA or flip it around? We could have observed that about Gonzaga. Was Gonzaga moving less? Were they less quick? Did they have weaker change of direction? That That's all observable these days. And it's not the kind of thing that they're feeding us in motion tracking. Do you think that we'll learn anything about what I'll call team construction as a result of this? Like in other words, to me, uh, Baylor seemed like the more, uh, the stronger team, the bigger team, the more athletic team, 
Um, at least they seem to get to the ball quicker. Like, did we learn anything about, like, will it be, like, if one was going to now do a post-mortem on the game and try to say, okay, I'm trying to now build the next NCAA champion. Is there anything I can learn from this game or no, not really? I, I mean, I mean, I think it's difficult based on one game to kind of extrapolate that because it could have just been individual matchups. I mean, you know, if, if, if you if you're if you're saying like, should we try and if you're building a basketball team, try and get bigger, stronger and more athletic. I think those are two, th- three things that in an unconstrained world that sound like a pretty good idea to do. But I mean, obviously, you're kind of sub- there's trade offs with that. Right. And that, you know, you get bigger and maybe your shooting accuracy goes down and you open yourself up to a negative matchup against a different kind of team. I, so I, I, I think, yes, I think maybe you can learn something about a particular type of matchup between two teams based on, on the, that blowout result. I'm not sure it necessarily given how constrained your kind of roster, like construction, you know, mechanisms are, whether you could necessarily take a ton of stuff forward from that. I don't know though. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know enough about basketball probably to be making the statement. Something we've learned about college basketball over the years is that there's more than one way to get it done. And we see different kinds of champions win this thing. And it's one of the most fun things about March Madness is you see different kinds of teams do it. Sometimes it's a bunch of one and done guys. And sometimes it's the veteran team that, that can, that can get it done. But the one thing that, that reminded me of Eric is uh, this, this CBS did a piece over the weekend. I think their morning show on Saturday, perhaps, did a piece on analytics, did a piece on analytics in um, a number of sports. And um, they quoted Maury, Daryl Maury in that, and he said, he, he talked about the, the value of the three-point shooter. And he said, look, you just it's all about three-point shooting now. And so my, my heuristic way to build a team is just get good three-point shooters. And by the way, Baylor, over the course of the season, was the best three-point team in the country. Yeah, that's something I noticed. I actually did not realize that during the game. Um, but I saw a stat during the game that Baylor shot 41.2% for the season and was the top three-point shooting team, which actually, if I had known that before the game, I probably would have been more encouraged about Baylor's chances in the game. Uh, just because, you know, as we know, as Adi always says, uh, three is worth 50% more than two, and that's not going to change. And, 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 and uh, sorry to interrupt, but given the inherent sort of like accuracy of three-point shooting, even the best three-point shooting team does not shoot three points as well as most two points are shot. Maybe that does sort of suggest that if you're going to be successful at th- a successful three-point shooting team, what you also need to be very successful at is offensive rebounding. And so, you know, these are two kind of parts of a roster construction you can kind of think about that should definitely go together. And you were kind of talking about clearly one of the keys to Baylor's sort of success in this particular game was their rebounding. Just a couple things. Um, first, uh, it's not surprising that Baylor was um, one after you look at Baylor's win and you discover that they're the best three pointer because that's the high variance strategy. So if you are a weaker team, like over the course of a season, right. and you want the best chance of beating the best team in a single playoff, do it with three pointers because if you hit a few, you're going to win. The other observation, just to follow up what Shane said, is follows up with some really wonderful research that some of my students produced in our capstone course. They looked at, they did a, built a clustering algorithm around, we should have them on to talk about this. They built a clustering algorithm uh, on shot selection, and then they, they created a bunch of sort of archetype different basketball players, and then showed how that varied, the proportions varied over time. And it was remarkable as years ago, there's all these different kinds of players. There were way different kinds of basketball players, different shot selections, and, and they did things differently. And you could have great players doing a variety of different things. 
today it's all converged on a whole bunch of different types. I don't even need to list them. You know them, but it's, um, it's, it's extremes. It's at the post or at the three point, but there's also seems to be roles for players just following what Shane, like Ben Simmons, who doesn't really shoot well, but is still very valuable on a team. And, and these are the, are the things that kind of mix well together. And that's how, how a championships are teams, not just three pointers, but to other things that also kind of work together to make them work well. So let's also, but before we entirely transition away from the NCAA men's game, I do want to talk about the women's in just a second. Um, Gonzaga has already been placed as the favorite for next year. So how much do we know about inter-year variability in performance? Like if I said all 64 teams were the same strength, but they would play again next year. What do we know about how much variation there would be in performance? Like, even if Gonzaga is the favorite next year, how much should they be the favorite by? Like, what odds would you give them to get back to, let's say, the final four next year? Any thoughts on year-to-year variation? Well, my first thought is that, the, that it would be more this year than usual. As we've talked about, the pandemic year really, we thought, increased the variance. The other is that it's still a pretty short season in college basketball. Although you, Gonzaga you, did play 31 games. Yeah, well, that's, but that's, that's not that much. Remember that the, one of the great analytics moments in the last decade was Nate Silver saying his secret sauce in his bracket were his preseason priors, introducing this idea that even after a full regular season, the preseason priors still have predictive qualities. That says something about the level of uncertainty during a season, Eric. So it says something, I think, about the amount of volatility you might expect year to year, even if it's the same strength going in. I would assume the main driver of volatility in college basketball teams is the change or lack thereof of personnel from year to year. Like, so, so the real question is how many of those players are graduating or not? Do they have good players filling them? And I would kind of guess that actually being in some ways, you know, being a really, really good high attention team that goes very far in the NCAA tournament actually is going to increase your year to year variability because your really good players are that much more likely to kind of have the exposure such that they would leave and declare for the draft, et cetera. And so you might actually be, it's harder to kind of hold together a really good team if they actually are very successful. Well, let me ask you a question. Great. I think that's a great point, Shane, where the better you do, the more likely you are to lose players. Was there anybody you saw in last night's game and you're like, that's a lottery pick. That person has got to be drafted in the top five or seven in the NBA. No, I mean, I don't know enough about basketball, unfortunately, to kind of really kind of gauge that across. I haven't, I don't watch enough college basketball games really cost like performance. I mean, you know, Jalen, Jalen Suggs based on one shot. I'm like, that guy's an NBA star of the future. But I mean, is that for real? I don't know. Christian Leitner also made some amazing shots and was kind of, well, I mean, was, I guess, a, a decent NBA player, but not exactly a, a game, a, a franchise. What was interesting about Suggs, which made me even more impressed, is after the game, I'm like, what were his stats? I'm like, oh, my God, he shot above 50%. It's without scoring the first, like, 10 minutes because he was in foul trouble. Wow, the guy dropped 22 points against a stifling defense where he was clearly the focus of the team. I'm thinking, wow. Matter of fact, my stock on him went up, not down. Well, agreed, and actually, outside of the scoring, the most impressive thing in the entire game, and one of the most impressive things I think I've ever seen on a basketball court, was his block, rebound, assist sequence earlier in the fourth quarter. It was just every one of those plays. Well, the, the block and the and the pass were just unbelievable. But he would block from where he was, get the ball, take a couple steps, and then throw that full court pass, one bounce, setting up the big man for the dunk. I mean, Mike. 
God, that was beautiful. But given what we know about variants, and he's my understanding is he's a freshman. I didn't realize that, but he's a fresh. He just finished. Would you have him? Would he come out? And would you take him with a top five pick, given what you've seen right I'm like now? Shane, I know I know nothing to make these assessments. Yeah. I'm not going to begin to say that. I have no idea. In general, this is, reminds me, Eric, a little bit of the the phenomenon that happened for a while, where the most valuable player in the Super Bowl was reliably the most overvalued guy in the next year's free agent market. There's just so much attention on that game that people get too many accolades and probably too much blame on the other end. But I would say that the same is probably true of March Madness, that we overestimate the value of the top performers in March Madness. Well, it was a great, it was a great tournament. And I will say, and I think you pointed out last week, Kate, it was pretty chalky after the first couple rounds. And, I mean, obviously the one surprise was UCLA making the Final Four. And again, um, by the way, just to remember, if we add up the total seeds in the Final Four, we got, well, we got Gonzaga's a one, Baylor's a one, Houston's a two, and then UCLA's an 11. So we got to 15. So, you know, we weren't... (laughs) We were right. We were right. It was a higher than usual number because the average is around 11. High 10s are 11, something like that. Um, So Um, we got got that one right. I I didn't think I'd win that one, but I had the highest number. Well, (laughs) remember how Michigan, I mean, the UCLA got there by, you know, one point win over Michigan, and it took Michigan missing like their last eight shots. It was, it's an example of a, I said up top that I loved about the, about the semi was that both teams played great and one team won. It felt, Mm -hmm. I mean, Look, UCLA played great against Michigan, but Michigan missed shot after shot, decent shot after decent shot after decent shot down the down the down the road, and it it just kind of painful to see. And that's well, how the number eleven seed got into that final four. Yeah, the variance on that statistics got to be pretty high. That's right, just it because not, of these kind of random, probably you know. Random I would random. imagine so. As I mean, well. the well, mode the mode is seven, by the way. So the most common is quite a bit lower than that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's transition a little bit away from NCAA uh, basketball uh, to something that, as you guys know, I will be watching every single minute of it starting on Thursday, which is, of course, the Masters. And I know all of you know this, but just to remind you, the last Masters was played in November because there was no Masters in April because of COVID. And so we're just five, six months away from the last Masters, which Dustin Johnson won. And then, of course, the Masters before that, Tiger Woods won. Um, So what do you guys think about, you know, the Masters, like, in other words, we always do this every year, which is, so how many players would I have to give you to take them against the field? So just so you know, the, uh, the number one player in the world, Dustin Johnson, who's also the defending champion at the Masters, is also the favorite at the Masters, is plus 800. So that gives him somewhere around an 11% chance, according to those odds. Uh, next is Bryson DeChambeau at plus 900. Uh, then we have John Rahm. Jordan Spieth, who's flew up the odds board, Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy. You basically, if I gave you the top 10 golfers predicted, which is Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Rahm, Spieth, Thomas, McIlroy, Cantlay, Shoffley, Kepka, and Finau, and I'll take the other 80, what do you think? Do you want the top 10 or do you want the other 80? Man, that's painful because I'm an all, all, all about the field, and we're philosophically about the field on this show, and I, by God, want those top ten, no question about it. In fact, you could sell me on a shorter stack than that, I'd still take them. Uh, so you I might even think... take the top – you might even take, Cade, the top five. Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, John Rahm, Jordan Spieth, and Justin Thomas? 
I, you know, I haven't run the numbers. I, I don't trust myself in these kinds of situations. But, yes, it feels like there should be more weight on those top guys this year than usual, if only because of DeChambeau. DeChambeau is an outlier both in the performance he usually has and his fit for this golf course. So we can talk about fit for a little bit, but um, I think there's a good argument to be made that he, he's, he's – I mean, there's a reason he's at the top of the board, and it's not just because he's been playing well so far this year. I, I think the – I don't have the numbers, but I believe that seven to eight is usually the pivot point where it crosses 50%. Uh, just using the odds, 10 seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems – I would actually take the top 10 versus the field if you, so if you no, said 10. It, it, and remember, and remember, the Masters has the shortest field of any of the majors. And that's ah. a big, that's a, I mean, the PGA has the biggest and we see more random winners in the PGA for a reason. So you should consider the size of the field too. How much extra bump would you give somebody for having won the Masters? Forget, like you could say, well, they have more experience. No, let's condition on two players. Like, so Dustin, of the top 10, Dustin Johnson has won the Masters. Jordan Spieth has won the Masters. Um, that's it. Actually, none of the other players have won the Masters. So if it comes down, let's let's say all top 10 players that I just listed are tied come Sunday. So they're all playing equally well. I'm intentionally framing it that way. How much probability, extra probability would you give Dustin Johnson or Jordan Spieth? Let me parse it. So I think you're trying to condition out the potential fit to a golf course. Right. You're saying exactly. That, and how but, well they're playing even that week. Okay, so you're, you're getting rid of that. What about the chance that they've won other masters? Like, so not other, other majors. Well, um, you know, I, I would definitely put that, uh, you know, I would definitely put extra weight on it, but um, this is something we'll have to talk about in Q3 of our show. So this has been one half of Wharton Moneyball. We have Q3. We're continue to talk about the masters. We've got NFL, we've got baseball, lots of stuff to talk about. And of course, in Q4, we have our guest, uh, Dr. Glenn Fleissig, who's going to talk to us about biomechanics. So stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We're here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. And of course, we're in the Zoom edition, podcast edition here. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. And some combination of us and Cade Massey here every week talking to you about COVID statistics, sports statistics, et cetera. And so we're here into Q3. We spent the first quarter talking about COVID. Q2, we spent a lot of time talking about the NCAA tournament. Of course, we spent time talking about the biggest golf tournament in the world that's starting on Thursday, which is the Masters. And so um, where we left off in the last quarter was we were just talking about the fact that, you know, is there momentum or is there any value for having won the Masters, even if I conditioned on how well you're playing this week. So, Adi, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I think this is a perfectly uh, good example to illuminate the difference between a Bayesian and a frequentist. So if you're a frequentist, you're looking for historically enough evidence to suggest that having won one tournament affects the next one. And generally, the answer to that question has always been, well, there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to suggest that it would change. Just to be just for our listeners out here, we would call that low statistical power. It doesn't mean right. it doesn't exist. It's it might, but it's not a large enough effect size that you can pick it up with the data. Right. And we've had a lot of data, so it's not exactly if so whatever effect size it is, it isn't big. On the other hand, a Bayesian has to say he won the tournament. I have some prior probability. Uh, you, are you telling me that my I don't want to update my prior probability at all? 
given the fact that he's won? And my answer is yes, I do want to update it, but probably not by much. So I think I'm going to say that if the, the if I if they replay the master, I would put a little bit more money on the winner, but very little well, money, not a an, lot. Here's an interesting empirical question I'd like to throw out to you guys, but I, we don't know, so I know the answer now. Here's two different winners I'll point out to you, or three different. Which is the bigger effect size in your mind? Okay, so Adi and Shane, listen to this. I'm going to throw out four different characteristics of a golfer, and you tell me which one you would add the most to their probability of winning <laughs> the Masters, okay? The first one is the person has won more majors than somebody else, okay? So let's take an example. Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy have four majors each. So let's imagine come Sunday, they're in the finals with Bryson DeChambeau, who has also won, but he's won one major. So number one, number of majors. Number two, having won a Masters. I just told you of the top 10, Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth are the only two of the top 10 who have won the Masters. Number three, Jordan Spieth just won last week. Forget in November. He won last week at the Texas Valero Open. So he literally just won. Or number four, someone who's had kind of the best, let's call it three-month season. So just a reminder for you guys, the person with the most major wins, the person with a master's win, the person that did best the last week, or the person who kind of cumulatively has done best over the last couple months? Who would you add the most probability to or you don't know? What do you think, Shane? I would put the most probability on the person who's won the most majors because, A, I think golf, especially in the majors, is an incredibly mental game. And I do think there is variance in how well players handle that mental game. And, you know, having won many majors or or several majors is evidence that you can handle that kind of last day pressure. It also suggests you're a very, very good golfer if you're winning lots of majors. So your actual inherent ability, even taking kind of the pressure aspect out of it, you know, is, is, is higher than maybe some other players that you talk about. Um, and I don't attribute, I mean, certainly the recency stuff does suggest that you're kind of at the top of your game, but I would put less weight on that compared to just kind of, you know, your general overall golfing ability and ability to handle pressure. Adi, what about you? I'm going to just, I'm just going to elaborate on my Bayesian theme of the day. I'm actually talking to genuine card carrying Bayesians here who may build careers on being much better than I am at this stuff, but I feel like it's the right tool for this. this But occasion. who are you going to add more? Who's going to, who can uh, so you I'm going to say that I'm, I'm inclined to follow Shane uh, mm-hmm. because I like the, 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 the masters wins. The, those give you the anchor of priors that's higher. Yeah. On the other hand, golf could be a, a game where, you know, different versions of yourself appear and that maybe the three month kind of uh, uh, history is, is, is particularly p- uh, powerful. I wouldn't necessarily, uh, I wouldn't think that would necessarily follow necessarily in basketball yeah. or football. I'm not sure, but maybe in, ba- in golf, it matters. I probably would discount the most, the previous win um, that would, yeah, no, and I, and I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I agree that the, uh, the Bayesian framework, if I want to actually kind of try and quantitatively answer this question, I'm thinking of a big kind of Bayesian random Frex model to predict your probably to model the probability of you winning a tournament and you'd have recency effects and you'd have kind of overall major pressure effects. You'd have effects for similar courses, course styles, wins and similar course styles and all that type of stuff. And I think what we're really kind of talking about is what you asked, Eric, kind of can be translated into which coefficients in that random effects model you kind of feel would be the biggest right of the biggest weight and i do think it probably is these kind of like 
you know, just performance in the biggest tournaments. But I agree, like, I think something like a Bayesian random effects model where we'd have different parameters for different players, but some kind of sharing of information across players would be the right way to kind of quantitatively get at this. Now, of course, you have to interact that probably with things like age and stuff, because, of course, the person playing the Masters who's won the most majors is Phil Mickelson. Now, by the way, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I think we all agree if Phil Mickelson was to win another major, it's probably most likely to be the Masters, but he is 50 years old. But he has the most major wins of now that Tiger's not Mm. playing of all the active players there. Um, So I think there'd probably be an interaction between majors. Yeah, and and it could be. I I don't know. I mean, is the Masters of all the majors, is the Masters the one where kind of an old timer is most likely to win? I mean, certainly my most two memorable situations of an old timer winning a major are both at the Masters, both Nicholas and Tiger, right? But I well, Hale Hale Irwin won the U.S. Open at a well yeah. into his mid and obviously not, Watson almost won the British Open at, at 58 58 well, you know, I mean, a six foot putt and he wins the British Open yeah. at age 58 and I think the record is actually Julius Boros at age 48 has is the oldest and it wasn't the Masters so um, but a lot of people think that a lot of pe- that someone like even Bernard Longer who's now 63 he can compete at the Masters he certainly uh, gave it a run last fall he gave it a run last year and we we will see again um, so let's now transition to a sport that Adi and I would be happy to talk about all the time, which is baseball. But I want to talk about one particular issue, which we talked about before, which is you guys remember when, and this will perfectly transition to our guests that Adi and I are going to speak to in the last quarter of our show, uh, Glenn Fleisick about biomechanics and injuries. Uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., you guys may remember how I railed on this show about how the Padres signed him to a $340 million contract where he had played 143 games before signing the contract. Just so you guys know, now this is not necessarily due to anything, but um, he swung so hard yesterday during the game that he sublexed his shoulder and he's out for an extended period of time. He wasn't hit. He just swung really, really hard. So my question to you is, are there any lessons we should learn? Like, forget about his quality of play. Maybe it turns out he's an injury-prone player, and we just haven't observed him enough to, to see that. Maybe his biomechanics of his swing are really poor, which makes him more likely to be injured. I have to admit, I didn't feel sorry. I mean, obviously, it's guaranteed contracts in baseball, so it's not like I'm feeling sorry for a man who's got $340 million coming guaranteed. But I have to admit, I was like, See, Padres, why are you signing this guy to such a massive contract so early on in his career? I mean, I think we were all over it. You got to put a positive, a, a substantive probability of a major career ending or, or career diminishing injury that takes his value from 340 down to mu- something much, much lower. It, therefore, the value, you, it was just an overvalued contract. It was insane. Um, and, uh, not that I'm rooting against him, but the probability that he has a, a, a that he isn't out for an extended period of time, he might might never recover even from an injury like this. Look at Stanton, last two years just down the drain. Who, another guy who swings a little too hard. Yeah, and I mean, I, can, I this is not a comment about his particular play style, and I do agree that that contract was overvalued, even. But I mean, the counter argument would be in this presence, in this world where injuries can end a career and injuries can kind of pop up, sort of if, if randomly. You know, one of the reasons to give your money 
to a younger player is they are much, they are less likely to have these career ending injuries, or you will have the time. They'll have the time to kind of recover from these career ending or these, these like serious injuries. I mean, you know, he's going to be out for a while now, but I mean, technically that's going to be covered by things like insurance and stuff like that. They'll still get him back hopefully in time to kind of earn a large part of that contract, as opposed to the, Giancarlo Stanton's of the world, where if you're signing somebody to that kind of contract when they're in their mid thirties, then that's even more questionable because, you know, every injury they could have could be a career ender or is certainly more, much more likely to be a career diminisher. Well, either way, it just seemed to me to be, um, it was, it was a really interesting uh, topic as well. Yep. Yeah. While we're on baseball, there's been a lot of um, criticism of analytics, the biomechanics on the pitching side, the mechanics on the hitting side, the launch angle, the statistics the, that has changed the game from the from the, what we might call small ball uh, to home run, home run, walk, home run, strikeout. And I've I've been uh, I'm not a big you know I'm I like analytics, but I do feel like we're missing that old style of play. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of games yesterday that were just the so great because they reminded me of how much fun a small ball game is. So if you're, you're were nodding any of them your with the white Sox and their 76 year old manager, Tony La Russa? <laughs> there was, and I'm actually wondering, I haven't done a real scope of the, of all the games are home runs down this year. I know they changed the ball. It's, it's people would say it's too early to tell, yeah, but I think actually it don't think it necessarily might be. There's a lot of at bats in, uh, in five games. Yeah, but I mean, um, it, 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 it's. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say it's too early to tell, not because we haven't seen a lot of games, but I mean, April games are very different. I mean, like you know, home runs are very influenced by like kind of the you know weather. temperature and weather temperature, and all that type yeah. of stuff. And we're obviously not getting a random sample. Well, but yeah, anyway, tell us about the game. So I'd compare to, to the great game time. that I'm referring to yesterday. I turned on uh, the Mets Phillies late in the game. I watched Degrom pitch an inning. He was unbelievable. Hundred one, hundred, hundred. It just this guy is clearly the best pitcher in baseball right now and that's just just an awesome display so that's the new version of baseball this pitcher who pitches so incredibly but then of course they pulled him um and i think they pulled him because of pitch count not necessarily because of the third time through the order um they just felt that it's early in the season and he's their star pitcher and they've got a they've got a baby I mean, although it was a close game it was two to nothing but the phillies came back in the most dramatic fashion no home runs um, you know, great base running, just fielding. It was just terrific. terrific uh, that to throw watch. to home, the, the throw to home plate that the catcher missed the ball or that, you're not going to count that ball. play in there. That was in there. It was, this was just exciting baseball. And then of course the Mets came back in the ninth and the, and the game ended with a warning track fly ball. It was just very, very exciting, smallish baseball. It was just a lot of fun. It reminds you how much we missed baseball yeah and um, i do i do i, I, I miss i miss the kind of small ball style i mean obviously you know if my if i wanted my team to win the most games i might not argue for a small ball style because it does seem hitting lots of home runs is a pretty yeah. good way of winning games but just in terms of like all the things you know equal opportunity of winning I, I i prefer that kind of small style there's just more stuff that's happening than just like you know mm-hmm. endless kind of series of strikeouts and home runs let's talk about a player in baseball who did something um that hadn't been done since 1903 uh, the other day, and that's I know. Sho- Shohei Otani, who batted second. Uh, and in that game, by the way, just so you guys, I'm sure you guys he saw pitched. this, he saw this. He was pitching in the game. Yeah, he it was a pitch, and he wasn't just a pitcher. He was pitching, batted second. But currently, at least as of yesterday, maybe it changed last night. 
he had the fastest pitch in the major leagues this season and also the hardest hit ball in the major leagues this season. Well, uh, two things have happened since is DeGrom pitched and Stanton hit a bomb. So he, I think, I think he held on to that record for a very short amount of time, but, uh, but it's an unbelievable fit. He threw 100.6 and he hit a ball 115.0 miles an hour. Um, Can you let our so, listeners know where are those on the distribution? Like how, like how, I mean, you know, 100.6, I mean, you hit three digits, it's fast, but like how fast is that? And how fast is 115? It's gotta be like top five percentile in both, right? Yeah. So the, the, I think it changed, right? It's about top five percentile in both. Um, Stanton will usually win the, the uh, hardest hit ball by the end of the season. And he'll hit it about 120, 121. I mean, and he'll do it because he'll have like six or seven in that, in that range. There might be a, seven or eight other people who will have one. Um, I'm not sure whether the current system is, is that accurate. So when Stanton hits 1-120, you'd probably f- figure it's legit. When someone else hits 1-120 and maybe just a measurement error, it really was a 117, mm-hmm. just bumped up. Hard to really know. We know about measurement error. But 120 is about the hardest hit that you'll ever see with the ball. 115 happens, you know, once every you know, few days. Um, that's not that dramatic. Well, I don't know if you saw what also happened in the game. Like Otani actually, um, again, he kind of injured himself a little bit at the end of the fifth inning. Like, is this sustainable? Is it sustainable that he's going to – let's make up a number. Is he going to have 500 at-bats and 25 starts? No. I mean, I mean you know, the historical <laughs> record would suggest that it's not sustainable because, again, what he's doing is, at least with his – you know, in modern baseball, pretty unprecedented. He also is a pretty unprecedented guy, though. So, I mean, it really – I mean, I would say, no, it's not sustainable. And I think because he's so good at either one, if it, it really does seem like there's a continuing injury risk, they're just going to switch him to one or the other, right? Uh, although, I, I, pitching. I have to say, I love it. I love it. It's oh, great me too. Game. Me too. And I'd love to see him pitch 25 starts and maybe not 500 at-bats, but it would a whole lot better than the 250 he was getting, 200 he was getting in the past because he didn't pitch on the day. He didn't pitch in the day before and then the day after. All that restrictions, I'd like to, love to see them go. By the way, having him pitch and hit in the same game, I think is absolutely the right move because there's this DH curse, um, which, uh, which I've heard you know described, and it's genuinely valid. What is a DH curse? Meaning means that same player when he plays in the field tends to have a bat, better batting average than when they, that same player is on the bench. And that's been observed consistently over the, over the years. Nobody knows exactly why it happened, but it's there. And, and I would guess that you'll get better hitting out of Shohani on the yeah. day he, plays, he pitches. Just a quick question on that. Adi. How do we know it's not a, like a self-selection bias that the reason that they're not playing the field is there's some sort of dinged up a little bit. They're okay enough to hit, but they're not okay enough to play the field. And that's what's driving their batting average down. You know what? Um, that's or the exactly reason the that they would be I chosen asked. as a DH out of all the possible candidates is they have the highest batting average on the team already. And so you can only, you know, there's going to be Damn. just like uh, a regression to the mean type thing. Damn. No, you mean, you mean to tell me that no one's actually running it, run a randomized uh, placebo controlled trial. of <laughs> That is what we need. That's what we need. Why don't we take a really bad team like the Red Sox and just start, maybe they could just be like an experimental team. For, well, let me ask you, Adi, because I know you, you've, you've studied this. If I told you right now Shohei could be in the 95th percentile of pitchers or the 95th percentile of batters, but he can't be both. He could be one of the two. Which would you have him do if you were the Angels? From a wins perspective, you know, I want to maximize wins. Should I have the 95th percentile pitcher or the 95th percentile batter? What do you think? 
Oh, that is a damn hard question because there, there are, uh, if you, if you think about the full distribution of pitchers, then I would argue, no, I, I want the batters, but there isn't that many pitchers who actually pitch. So if you met 95% of all starting pitchers that actually will take the mound during the year, then no. But if you mean the, just the, the starters starters, then if it just the starters, 95% of the starters. That's yeah, rare. No, I, I mean, if, if you told me that he either pitched 200 innings for your team season at the 95th percentile or batted, like did 550 at-bats for your team in the 95th the percentile, 95th. I'd take those 200 innings pitched. Yeah, me too. And Despite the fact about- that the 500, of course, this is great for our listeners who are in Warren Moneyball because the 500 at-bats, 550, as Shane said, he may be doing it in 140, 145 games. If he's mm-hmm. doing it for pitching, he's doing it 25 of those games. And yeah, but I mean, his, but his, 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 his kind of marginal effect on the winning percentage for those 25 games, if he really is in the 95th percentile, yeah, I, is yeah. more valuable, I think. I think in terms of pitching war, I think it's about five war, five to six war in 95th percentile. I would guess the 95th percentile of hitters uh, are probably around four war, maybe. Uh, it's not that different. Um, but think about there's a there there aren't many um, there's there's a lot of hitters that are 95 percent the five percent of hitters is probably about 30 hit, baseball yeah. players that's a lot and five percent of the starters is probably about five. Yeah. <laughs> so now let me throw let me throw out another stat for you and ask you two related statistical questions. So the Phillies are four zero for only the third time in their history. Um, so my two part question is let's imagine they were we have this question every year but I have to ask it again. Let's imagine, Shane, that they were going to be a 500 team. That was our prediction. So two and two, they've exceeded it by two. So if they play like we expect for the rest of the season, they're already two games ahead of expectation. Now, of course, another thing, you we're Bayesians. Maybe we should raise their P above 0.5 now that they're 4-0. Now, I understand it's not 20-0. Um, how many wins would you if, – if your previous forecast for the Phillies was 81, 81 and 81 – Okay, Shane. Mm-hmm. What would you predict for them now that they're four zero? Would it be purely eighty three and seventy nine? Like I'm giving them two extra wins, or would you bump up their P slightly? Like even if you bumped up their P to five ten, they're a five ten winning percentage team. Well, that adds another one point six wins onto it. Yeah. So where would you be in terms of expected number of wins for the Phillies now that they're four zero? I would bump it up a little bit. I'm not sure I'd bump it up to 510 from 500, maybe something like 505 or something like that. But I would bump it up because not only did they win, they won against, you know, base. A, they won against a division rival and also, at least by our preseason expectations, the best team within that division, right? And so it's not, you know, they, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, Baltimore winning three games against the Red Sox. I wouldn't bump up their winning percentage above 0.5 or whatever. I wouldn't bump up their winning percentage too much just based on that because they didn't win against a particularly good team. But uh, the Phillies beat beat the Braves and the Mets and, as part of all this. So I would bump it up a little bit. Yeah, it's really, it's one of my favorite calculations to do because it's not only about how much are they exceeding expectations but then maybe you have to change the expectation right Mm -hmm. and that's to me the part about now of course you and I I mean as you and I both know there's a a statistical method called a beta Bernoulli model where we basically just have to decide how much weight are we going to put on the prior because we know they've got four wins and zero losses as you know a a beta distribution can be thought of as a prior on wins and losses so we're going to put since they're 500 we're going to put the same number of chips if you'd like in the win and the loss bucket in the prior but how many 
Yeah. And so what you're interesting, it's interesting that we could convert yours. So let's imagine you've had 20 in each for the prior. So now you'd have 24 and 20, which would be, so that's maybe too much. You want to have more than 20 in there because what you're basically saying is that would give them, that would basically make them 12 and 10 or six and five, which would be 55%, which for you is way, way too high. So your prior is probably somewhere around maybe 50 and 50. Yeah. And, and, and you're asking kind of, I think you're framing the right way. It's basically what, how many games are your preseason expectations? Correct. And another way of kind of thinking about that, that I always think about is how far into the season do you start buying into a team's actual record versus those preseason expectations? And what do you, what's your answer? I, I, at least a third of season. You so know, like, you, like it is like about June. 50 yeah, games. like uh, for me, it's like in the 50 or 60 games. But would, but even then, if my, if your, if our prior math is right about adjustments, you, would you put an equal weight? Let's, let's do another uh, thought experiment. Yeah. So let's say it's 50 games. And the Phillies are, let's, let's dream. Let's say they're 35 and 15. That'd be a dream. Let's that even say 30, dream. let's say 30 and 20. Let's be yeah, more realistic. Yeah. They're 30 and 20. So they're playing yeah. 600 ball. Mm-hmm. Would you now say, okay, their observed data is 30 and 20. I'm going to add, let's say 50 and 50. Or maybe you'd add 30 and 20. Maybe you'd yeah. add 25 and 25 to that. You'd put an, would you put an equal weight on those 50 games and on the prior? So now they're basically 55 and 45. And you're basically going to say they're a 550 team. That's going to be my forecast. Or is even that too much of an adjustment? Well, I, I mean, again, I, my third, the third of the season is kind of where I sort of kind of put equal weight. draw my line and assign where it's equal weight between what they've actually done and what I thought they should have done. Okay, so, so that's would, right. At 30 yeah. and 20, which is roughly yeah. a third of the season, 54 yeah. games a third, you would then say they're a 550 team if they mm-hmm. were 30 and 20. That's right. The other because is, after that, they really do. If they keep winning at that pace, they're just going to accumulate enough wins where your preseason expectations all of a sudden become actually unrealistic. Then, then all of a sudden, they have to start performing like a 410 team or something like that to, to actually meet your expectation, you know, kind of your preseason expectations to kind of regress down. So, maybe just one last question on this topic, which is related to the Phillies being 4 0. Why is this only the third time in their history that this? Is true? I know. So when you first said do, it, I'm like, really? Yeah. So let me just do the math for everyone here. Let's imagine the Phillies in general are a 500 team. They're probably not, but let's just use yeah. it for rough Historically, they haven't been. To go 4 0 is one half to the fourth, which is 1 16th. The Phillies have been a team for over 100 years. Um, 100 times 1 16th should be, this should be an expectation six or seven times. Now, maybe with the Bernoulli random variation, maybe three isn't that far away from an expectation or six or seven. But I think you and I agree. That seems like a very low number yeah. for a team to only have three seasons in their history where they're 4 0. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think one thing that messes up that kind of calculation is the assumption that they're a, a 500 team equally every season. I mean, the Phillies, I think they're kind of specific franchise history. There's been a lot of years with a lot of really bad teams that I guess have maybe led to that. But I still think it's an, even, even given their history, I'm surprised by that fact. Maybe just in the last few seconds we have here, uh, anything has surprised you so far in the baseball season? The Red Sox are as bad as you thought, maybe. Um, the <laughs> I Astros was a little bit more cautiously optimistic thought. about them than their performances thus far shown. Um, I guess the Phillies, you know, the Phillies coming out of the gate so fast is certainly one of the things that's really kind of impress, uh, impressed me. And, you know, um, I'll tell you another thing, just kind of linking back to sort of the start of our show, the COVID thing, is I'm a little bit surprised we're still at this point 
having to, you know, delay and postpone games because of COVID. I mean, I understand as this vaccine rollout goes that we, we have to hit the people that are most important, like healthcare workers and all that stuff. But is there not enough vaccine in this country around now where we can somehow make sure that, you know, this very big money enterprise of professional baseball keeps going without this type of thing happening. Well, just back to back to your topic, though, from quarter number one, which you talked about. Remember, there might be a significant number of professional baseball players who are never vaxxers. They don't want to take the vaccine. And I don't see Major League Baseball enforcing you having to take the vaccine. And as long as that happens and and baseball players are out in the community, they're not playing in a bubble. There's no reason why they won't get actually exposed but i think what's changing now and this is our hope for the full season is that once people are doubly vaccinated the cdc requirements do not require quarantine anymore so we may see isolated players not playing but certainly not uh certainly not teams so this has been three quarters of wharton moneyball uh stay with us in quarter four we have an interview with dr glenn fleisick who's going to talk to us about the role of biomechanics so stay with us and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to quarter four here of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Uh, we're, as everyone knows, one of the best parts of Wharton Moneyball is where we have experts that can talk about various aspects of training and performance and analytics, and today is no exception. Uh, we're fortunate to have Dr. Glenn Fleisick with us today. Uh, he's earned his engineering degrees, various degrees, from MIT, WashU, and UAB. He's currently the research director of the American Sports Medicine Institute. Uh, he's been there since his inception in 1987. And Dr. Fleisick has been researching and talking about published hundreds of articles, given presentations all over the world. He's an injury advisor for Major League Baseball, but he's talked about a topic that's been near and dear to our hearts on Wharton Moneyball for years, which is pitching biomechanics. So Dr. Fleisick, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Adi. Great to be here. So why don't we just start with the beginning? Um, Tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in the field of biomechanics. Sure. Well, I was born, no, no, I'm just kidding. I went to (laughs) MIT, okay, back in the 1980s. I went to MIT and I majored in mechanical engineering and I like sports just like you and all the listeners here. And um, so as a senior at MIT, you have to do a thesis project. And uh, I'm sorry I didn't go to Harvard and Yale like you guys, I had to go to MIT. But um, anyway, I, um, in the mechanical engineering, which was my major, I could study the mechanics of cars or of physical devices. And there was one mechanical lab studying the, a golf swing. And I'm like, as a sports guy, I thought this was great. So there was an upcoming field called biomechanics, which is the application. Biomechanics means biology and mechanics. It's the application of motion uh, studies to people. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, and so I studied that. I loved it. And then I asked the professor, where do I get a job doing this? And I, this was in the 80s. This was 40 years ago, but I remember it clearly. He, he laughed in my face and said, there are no jobs in this, okay? But he hooked me up uh, with the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, which was doing some biomechanics and uh, on the athletes in the 80s, which was very exciting. And one thing led to another. I went there and then I met a young up and coming doctor named Dr. Andrews. He was a, a guy in Georgia. We've heard we of him. Hit it off. Yeah. And um, we hit it off and uh, he was young and I was younger and one thing led to another. So he hired me in 1987 
to start uh, the American Sports Medicine Institute, as you mentioned, in Birmingham, Alabama. Frankly, I'm a guy from New York who then lived in Colorado. I didn't know where Alabama was on the map, but uh, I uh, took the plunge. It's been great. And uh, 30 plus years later, Dr. Andrews, myself, and ASMI are, are doing well. Would you say that um, the early work, maybe I have this wrong, but I have this uh, perception that the early work in biomechanics maybe was more about injury prevention as opposed to performance, or do I have it wrong? Have those gone neck and neck since the beginning? Yeah, biomechanics before sports really started just on, on health things, on, on people with cerebral palsy and stuff, walking on treadmills, and it really wasn't big on sports until we started getting into it. I, I would say golf was the first sport and was about the performance, but in 1980s, when I met Dr. Andrews, Dr. Andrews essentially told me, hey, Glenn, your job is to put me out of business, okay? Keep people safe, prevent injuries. And uh, so we quickly flipped the paradigm. And since the 1980s, our focus has really been on safety. And, and I know we're going to get into it, but that's really why we've been focusing on baseball pitching so much of all sports. Because if you think about it, people get hurt in a lot of sports, but who really hurts themselves? I mean, baseball players don't get hit by a linebacker or something like that. They're just doing the same motion again and again. And by overuse, they're hurting themselves. So it really sets itself up for the study of the mechanics. So, so Glenn, uh, one of the things that really interests me is um, getting a more scientific answer to the age old question of our pitchers getting injured more, less, worse, longer than they used to despite or because of all the biomechanics and all the training, or is it a kind of race in two opposing directions where uh, the, be the better you are at saving people from getting hurt, the more they train and get throw even harder and that they just end up exactly where they were. Um, and, and, and can you give me like a scientific answer that, that, that goes more beyond back and when we were young, our pitchers, you know, you know, that kind of talk. <laughs> yeah, man, Adi, I, I, let me tell you, there have been so many rewarding moments in my career, but there's some frustration. Here we are 30 plus years later, studying the biomechanics and really making a big contribution. And I, don't, I think it's pretty obvious there are more uh, injuries and more surgeries in pitchers now than when we started. So, I mean, you know, Dr. Andrews gave me a charge and essentially we've, we've failed. But is, like you- uh, Is it because people are throwing there. more? Is it more pitches or harder or, I mean, I'm sure you'll get well, into that, but is it is it like just, you know, is it like mass times velocity? Is it just, you know, what is it that actually creates that? Well, you're, you're, you're right on, Eric. So, uh, you know, we have made some great strides and, and biomechanics or the pitcher's mechanics is just one part of the equation for who gets hurt and who doesn't and who, who succeeds and who doesn't. And frankly, what we've found out is that uh, the injuries have to do with your mechanics, but also how much you pitch and, and your intensity and, uh, and other factors. But the intensity, you know, really the, uh, the, love, the love of the radar gun has really inspired pitchers of all levels from that Latin American kid trying to make it to the majors to the high school kid trying to get, get uh, recruited to college. Everyone's trying to light up the, the radar gun. And we've done a study, a biomechanical study. Adi, you were asking about this. This is not our, our back in the days. We've done a study that showed that uh, it shows how much the harder you pitch, the more stress it is on your elbow and shoulder. Interestingly, it's not just uh, between one person and another, it's within a person. In other words, I might pitch harder, greater 
velocity than Eric does, but Eric might have less force or more force than me. It has to do with your mechanics. But for sure, we've shown that within a person, if you're maxing out and throwing all pitches at full effort, then you are redlining and you're putting your ligaments at the, at the maximum level. I just want to touch before we go to the next question. Again, it, mechanics is one part, intensity. And the other part, perhaps the biggest part, is the volume. And while there are more injuries now, I think the thing is, when I was a kid, you played little league baseball and then you, or high school baseball, and you move on to the next sport in the next season. Kids are playing one sport, baseball or another sport year round. So the volume, the kids are coming in with so much mileage on their arm uh, that it's the amount, not just the intensity and the mechanics. Before I turn it back over to Adi, I was going to ask you, so you actually were gonna, answered my question, I think, in a way that just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, so in some sense, you're your own control. Like, it would be great to run randomized experiments where you randomize people to pitch hard, not pitch hard, you know, I don't know, get surgeries, not get surgeries. I'm joking there. But in some sense, you're pointing out there's a within subject phenomenon where I can act as my own control, which allows me to compute, you know, if I can measure things over time, time series kind of data, I can then try to start to get some handle. Am I interpreting what you're saying correctly? You're totally right. And not only is it your intensity, but it's your mechanics. We've shown that if you adjust a person's mechanics, fix some flaws, they could get the same velocity with, with less force on their arm. They're more efficient or better, uh, better coordination. Right. What that ends up doing is that since they can get the same velocity with less force, they now can put more force and get more velocity. And that's why probably they're go going faster. So maybe that's, that's, that leads into I have, a whole, I have so many questions I, I, we could well, take. Well, as the host, I have to say one at a time. You'll one at a time. One at a time. Going. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by asking a question. Um, again, Eric and I love to do this because we, we, we're so, we're, we have such deep ba baseball memories from the 70s and 80s, as I'm sure you do. But for many years, the, the relief core was a full notch below, below uh, quality than the, than the starting pitchers with the exception of the closer that, you know, that, that as a entity grew with Sparky Lyle and, you know, you can tell my affiliations. Um, and, and, uh, and then of course, uh, culminating in, in Mariana Rivera, but now you have this, these, this, this, this short relief group, each team as many of them that seem to be on a pitch per pitch basis, as good as any starter. Is that simply because they only pitch four or five um, batters at most, or is it because these are genuinely great pitchers? They just don't have the stamina or the repertoire to be starters. Well, uh, really, again, going back to the biomechanics, what we've done in our research and over the years is we've actually uh, put out a field of, of works showing these are the proper mechanics. And there's mm -hmm. all these technologies now to help coaches get pitchers right. mechanics. So there are a lot more pitchers who have better mechanics now, uh, Adi. And what happens is mm. these pitchers are therefore, like you said, they're not going to lower their force. They're getting more velocity because they have the best mechanics. So there's a whole stable of pitchers nowadays with the higher velocity. This is no news to you guys. The pitchers who, um, who can moderate their velocity, you know, dial back and, and pitch a little faster here and there and really mess up the batters, they're more suited to be the starting pitchers. The relief pitchers, are the guys who basically have one speed in their head, okay? And so what the team, I talk with a lot of the teams and um, they have, they ask me, they have this particular pitcher and he only throws full effort every pitch. And they say, do you think he should just be a relief pitcher, a short relief pitcher? I say, absolutely. The starting pitchers have to be able to vary 
their velocity more for performance, getting through the lineup two or three times, but also for the endurance. So these starting pit, these relief pitchers pitch one inning, if that, at maximum effort. And uh, that's what they're suited for because they're throwing everything at max effort. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here joined by my co-host, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Dr. Glenn Fleisick, who, among other things, is the Research Director of the American Sports Medicine Institute, where he's been since its inception in 1987. Uh, Dr. Fleisick, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, are some people just born with a greater propensity because of their body structure to be able to pitch mechanically more sound than others? Or can everybody be taught to the equal level of biomechanics? Well, yeah, if everyone could throw 100 miles per hour, I, you'd be interviewing me as a pitcher. Well, no, no, but I can throw biomechanically as best. Maybe to me, it's 75. Yeah. Maybe to you, it's 80. Maybe to Adi, yeah. it's 95. But so, we're all like, does my bone structure, my ligament structure, does like, or can everybody be their best biomechanically version of themselves? That, that's what it is. Each of us, because of our genetics, because of who we chose as our parents, uh, yeah. we have a certain range. We will, the best we'll ever pitch is this, the worst we'll ever pitch is this. And then the things we could do to modify, to maximize, is how much we pitch, optimizing our mechanics, and optimizing our strength and conditioning and our nutrition. So uh, again, due to genetics, people have a certain range. They'll be between this good and this good. And then you could adapt your mechanics and other, other factors to optimize yourself, but your optimization might be less than someone else's. So Glenn, um, when should... Uh an athlete, a, a kid or a young adult, high school, when should they really, really work on their biomechanics as opposed to just getting out there and throwing? Great, when great question, you... Adi. So yeah. we, uh, we've done a, a few studies and uh, mm -hmm. several studies. I just want to point out a, a website called pitchsmart.org. This is with Major League Baseball and USA Baseball. And pitchsmart.org talks mostly about how much you should pitch, okay? But um, there's another website called baseballbiomechanics.org which talks more about the mechanics. And uh, to answer your question about when you should start, those two websites, as they present, you should start, you had to learn how to throw before you could pitch. So seven, eight-year-olds, they, they should learn how to throw. But when you get to the uh, pitchers, the leagues where they have pitchers, maybe nine years old, that's totally appropriate time to learn to be a pitcher. Um, you don't want to overdo it, as I said, but what our studies have shown also, Adi, is that the successful pitchers uh, get the good mechanics as early as possible. And the good mechanics for 11-year-old and 13-year-old and 18-year-old and pro is pretty similar. What changes is the force and the velocity. So we really think learn the proper mechanics as early as possible. And then as the athlete gets through puberty and high school, then you build on strength and conditioning and you build on that. But getting the good habits and mechanics as early as possible. There seems to be just an enormously large variety of ways to throw the ball. Overhand, three-quarter, sidearm, uh, almost underhand. I'm assuming and uh, that there's a correct way to do it in every slot, if you will. Or is it that there's a right way and all those people just do that because it creates spin and does funny stuff to people's deliveries and, and, and approach? Uh, can you comment on what's the difference? Sure. And again, we published, honestly, recently a paper comparing overhand to three quarters to sidearm. Um, and what we found out is there are certain similarities for successful pitching of all of them. 
and then there are some differences. Obviously, they look different. So uh, the similarities are there because everyone has the same body parts, a biceps muscle and a shoulder, and everyone's moving, observing the same laws of physics. So there have to be some similarities, but there could be some differences in style. And let me point out an example here. How The proper way to get a different arm slot, and I'm doing moving my arm through space mm -hmm. right now, is if you're more over the top, the proper way to do it is to bend your trunk more over, not to change your armpit angle, as we call shoulder abduction. And when you go lower on the side, again, you don't drop your elbow and drop your arm. You change your trunk. Because, for instance, the way the shoulder joint is built, the most successful way and healthiest way is for the armpit angle to be about an L shape or 90 degrees. And then the pictures at all the different levels, if they do it properly and without getting hurt, they change their trunk tilt to the side, to the glove side, not dropping their throwing elbow. How do you so, get a, a young pitcher to learn how to do that? I mean, it's such a, you can't, you can't really seem to control it on your own. Someone must, must give you feedback or do you have a, a, a yeah. biomechanical arm or sleeve or a, a video? Was, or, yeah, that was what I was going to ask. You yeah. alluded to this earlier. There must be, you know, I don't know, simulators or places you yeah. can now go throw and you get, you know, kind of here's your angle. Here's the optimal one. Or I, I'm, yeah, sure. very interested to hear this as well. Sure. So, uh, uh, again, I know we're short on time, but uh, essentially way before any of us were here and when Adi was talking about uh, uh, pitchers back in his childhood days, they didn't have biomechanics labs. But so there have always been some pitchers who have just figured it out correctly, uh, three quarter arm or overhand, j just they figured it out. What biomechanics is doing is helping the guys who haven't figured it out properly, perfectly trying to maximize themselves. Now, so to answer your question, some pitchers will figure out how to throw a three quarter arm or sidearm or over the top with the right armpit angle, because frankly, it feels best. It feels best. But there is some technologies, biomechanics technologies to check people out. Frankly, some of these things like uh, that armpit angle and trunk tilt is a pretty easy one to see from just from a, a, a nice quality video from the front view. But there's a bunch of biomechanical systems out there uh, with different types of sensors. Some are sensors you put on your body Many are just uh, analysis of the cameras. But the, the trick is, you know, cameras take a two-dimensional view, just one viewpoint, but we're all moving in three-dimensional space. So in our lab at ASMI, we have all these computers and cameras all around, but uh, there are now technologies getting out there that are becoming more uh, accessible to, to labs throughout the country. And some of them are even trying to become uh, on your cell phone, just a, 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 an app where you could uh, record people and get their three-dimensional motion. So the technology is coming. Uh, it, it's really quite exciting. So I have two quick uh, follow-ups to that, uh, Glenn. One is how close are we to, let's call it, artificial intelligence, looking at video data, and then kind of ingesting that data and computing, I don't know, distances from optimality, and then making recommendations, like an AI recommendation system based on video, or do I need Glenn Fleissig to watch me, and you know, how, how close are we to that day? Well, there's really two, that's good, good insight, by the way, but there are really two places for artificial intelligence. One is for the technology of capturing the person's mechanics. But the other one is artificial intelligence for just saying what to do once we've figured out what your mechanics are. Um, those are two different things. The, uh, um, we're working with a bunch of companies to try to, um, to, try to uh, 
put my brain <laughs> into uh, artificial intelligence it. so yep. that uh, different people could analyze and learn patterns that we would recommend. But artificial intelligence is also being used in the single camera data collection method. It's called neural network or artificial intelligence. Essentially, uh, these companies are just trying to record uh, hundreds or really thousands of pictures and try to learn what pictures look like. The technology that exists right now, the multiple camera systems don't need that. They, they are, are uh, basically eyes from different views and they're just looking at the laws of physics and not learning patterns. They are just measuring where you are. So the current technology is very well accepted, very accurate. It's, it's actually what's used in sports, but it's also what's used in uh, animation and in movies and in video games. It's, it's the multiple cameras where you put the little markers on the people. I try to figure out the torque on the elbow they try to make it into it like a frogman who's coming out of a, a movie, but it's the same technology. You can figure out exactly how people are moving, uh, but the artificial intelligence you're getting at, Eric, that's what they're trying to put into a single camera because it has less information being collected. I have one more question, then I'll leave the last question to uh, Adi. Um, I'm an effect size guy, and so let's imagine the outcome that I was trying to predict was probability of injury. How high on the list or what's the relative effect size of proper biomechanics versus rest versus proper nutrition versus volume. maybe it's uh, yeah, volume. Maybe it's proper trunk strength or core strength, leg strength. How much is biomechanics? Is it like the number one driver? Where is it? And what are the relative sizes of these effects? Sure, sure. You know, it, it's really all the different pieces of the puzzle. It's, it's like you were telling someone, is it more important for me to stop smoking or to eat healthy food? I mean, they're both parts of my health equation, right? I don't smoke or anything, <laughs> and I don't eat healthy food either. But I can but, tell you, <laughs> you that example, that the smoking effect side is a lot larger. Right. And so yeah, that's why I'm your, trying to get at here. Like, what right. do we know? Yep. To answer your question, by far, I'm the biomechanics guy, but by far, the biggest effect is the amount of pitching and rest. Um, the uh, studies showing that poor biomechanics lead to high stress and injury are pretty strong, but the studies that show that kids who pit, kids uh, 18 and under who pitch too much get hurt is overwhelming. The, the, the single study we've done with the strongest statistical finding was we did a study about pitchers who, high school pitchers who had surgery and uh, high school age pitchers who never got surgery, and we asked them all these questions. When did you throw a curveball? We looked at their mechanics, whatever. Um, the one thing was the pitchers who kept throwing after they were fatigued, who routinely kept pitching after they were fatigued, were the ones who got hurt. It was a 3,600% risk factor, a 36 wow. times risk factor. So essentially, if, if, you, if uh, you pulled up your sleeve, if, if you guys left your arms down and you tell me one of you uh, kept pitching when you were fatigued as a kid, and one of you didn't stop when you were fatigued, I'll bet $36 to one I could tell who has the, the surgery scar on their elbow because that amount of pitching and, and pitching past fatigue is definitely the biggest factor. Unbelievable. Adi, right, I, wait, I will give you the next question, but I do have one last question for Dr. Fletcher, but you go first. <laughs> go ahead, Adi. All right, well, mine, mine is almost a finale on that one. So last night I watched uh, Phillies versus the Mets, and probably the best pitcher alive today is Jacob deGrom. The, the Mets pulled him two to two, two nothing lead in the seventh inning after he had pitched 77 pitches, which is just about how many pitches Jake Snell um, uh, uh, pitched um, in the, Blake, in the Snell. Uh, Blake Snell pitched in the in the in the World Series when they pulled him to great 
detriment. And again, the Mets uh, lost to the Phillies. We're, we're happy about that here, I guess. Um, I don't really have a horse in that particular race, but um, there's a lot of chatter that why 70, 70s, that's an incredibly small number of pitches for a starting pitcher who looked unhittable. Um, what is that? It, there must be some reason for this, the volume reason, but you're pointing to the, the, the youth stage. Um, is this still carry through to the absolute highest echelon of, of sports? Yes. Yes. In the adult and the pro pitchers, there really has not been good statistical proof that pitch counts uh, correspond to who gets hurt. But which pitchers are fatigued does correspond. So one pitcher will fatigue at a different time than others. You talk about last night with the Mets and DeGrom, and I think about the night before with Shohei Otani, and it looked like uh, they left him in perhaps one inning too long, you know, and he looked like he was uh, losing it. And then Blake Snell, he had to realize that was a different time of the season. That was the end of a season mm-hmm. where he had, had built up. Um, and uh, whereas last night with DeGrom, that was first game after a 10-day layoff for the Mets uh, after a, a shortened season. So essentially, Adi, I can't give you the exact equation. I can't second guess all the pitching coaches. Maybe we can make but, the equation. <laughs> but, but I can tell you, with all the science we have, the biggest factor is fatigue. And so uh, fatigue does not happen at the same pitch count for everyone due to the mechanics and this and that and strength and conditioning and due to some of them have a lingering injury. So really that's the biggest challenge between the pitching coach and the pitcher uh, reading the fatigue at the moment in the game. And uh, you, you don't want a pitcher at any level, youth or major league to kind of be thinking, am I tired or, or whatever? He, the, he needs to know the pitching coach and the pitching coach needs to know him before the game goes so they kind of know what the signals are and that's the challenge for the pitching coach to leave a guy in when the going is good but when it's fatigued take him out for another day glenn maybe in the last 30 seconds we have i know our listeners on wharton moneyball would both shoot adi and me if i didn't ask you this question which pitchers out there today have the best biomechanics if you had to rank order the top pitchers in terms of biomechanics who would they be i am going to shortchange you okay uh, uh-huh. I don't really like talking too much about particular pitchers. We have tested 11 Cy Young Award winners in our lab of the thousands of pitchers we've tested, but we really don't disclose uh, that answer. We do just uh, summarize them in general and say of the top 100 pitchers we've seen or 200 pitchers we've seen, all the ones that are successful do this or that. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but either way, there is, in other words, you would, there is a way to compute some sort of score or ranking. Not that you're right. going to divulge it to us here. So, yeah, I thought I'd get a scoop here on Wharton Moneyball, but there is a way to kind of overall score them. For, for sure. And there's really not one thing to do best, but there are really a lot of things to do wrong. So the guys who are good essentially do everything in the kinematic chain correctly, everything in the coordination correctly. The guys who are a risk factor have a glaring flaw, some mistiming or some wrong angle. Well, Glenn, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. So this has been four quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, my colleague, Idy Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey, on behalf of our producer, Matt Datz, and our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, uh, thanks to everyone. Uh, Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Moneyball.